0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture podcast channel and the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at toferarchitecture.com. <clears throat> Today's guest is Carrie Dean Carso to talk about her book, Follies in America, A History of Garden and Park Architecture. Carrie Dean Carso is professor of art history at the State University of New York at New Paltz. She is also the author of American Gothic and Architecture in the Age of Romantic Literature. Gary, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Brian.
0: So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I grew up near Boston, Massachusetts, and I did all of my schooling there as well. So uh, I went to Harvard University as an undergraduate, and there I was an English major, But I was always interested in architecture, and when I read my first Gothic novel, which was Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is an 18th century Gothic novel, I loved it because it was full of architecture. It's set in a medieval castle where all kinds of mysterious things happen. And so when I wrote my undergraduate thesis, I decided to work on the topic of architectural space in Gothic novels. And then that year, my senior year of college, I took an architectural history class for the first time. So like a lot of students, I think I discovered art history and architectural history a little bit late because it's not something you're, you learn about really in high school. Um, and so I got to college. I got interested in it. And when I went to graduate school, I decided to look for programs that were interdisciplinary, where I could study both literature and architecture, as well as um visual and material culture and paintings. And so I found my way to Boston University, where I completed a PhD in American Studies. And I made architectural history my major field of study, but I also was able to, of course, to study literature. And um, so that led me to my dissertation project, which is the, the book that you just mentioned, actually, the, my first book, American Gothic Art and Architecture in the Age of Romantic Literature, where I looked at the influence of these Gothic novels on American painters and architects and landscape designers in the 19th century. Um, so that's how I came to architectural history. It's kind of an unusual trajectory um, because I came at it through literature. Um, but in that sense, I think um, somewhat unique uh, in that, I'm able to do this kind of cultural history with a broad lens, Um, but I'm not a a very traditional architectural historian. And of course, my book on follies, uh, I think the subject matter tells you that it's an unusual topic, I think, especially when you're looking at the United States. Um, So that's a little bit about me.
0: Very interesting. And so you already mentioned follies. So I don't tend to usually start right at the title, like to dive right in the book. But I guess if you could elaborate, because I know I did not, the word folly, at least for me, meant something completely different. So I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through a little bit what you're referring to when you say follies in America.
1: Okay. So um, these follies that I'm looking at date back to the 18th century English landscape garden. These were gardens uh, that were designed around Uh, usually neoclassical country houses by these elite aristocrats and and as a way to draw the viewer through the landscape these follies were uh, built so these are small usually small uh, landscape buildings that are historicized so for instance um At Stowe and Stourhead in England, these are two of the more famous landscape gardens, there are these small buildings that might take the shape, for instance, of a temple. So at Stourhead, there's a miniature version of the Roman pantheon. And it acts as an eye-catcher, a building that attracts your attention in the landscape and draws you to it, and also as a belvedere. So once you get to that little pantheon and you stand in front of it, you'll have a beautiful view Uh, which is what Belvedere means. And then you'll also be drawn to the next folly that's in your eye line. Um, They also, of course, have the function of being a place to take a rest and to get out of the, you know, uh, the rain or to have a bit of shade. But of course, when regular people saw these little buildings, they called them follies because they thought it was foolish for an aristocrat to spend all this money uh, building useless buildings. So that's how they became known as follies. Um, so they were popular in the 18th century and into the 19th century in England as part of the picturesque movement. Um, so these landscapes tend to be irregular and varied. And they the, the paths follow the topography of the site. Uh, and then these follies, again, kind of lead your way around. So it feels natural, but it's actually unnatural because it's a designed space. Um, but the follies are kind of nestled, you know, within the landscape garden and, uh, they're a source of amusement and sometimes they can be very idiosyncratic and particular to the designer or the owner. Um. So I was always really fascinated when I first learned about these was uh, I think when I took that architectural history class at Harvard uh, and I was always kind of curious about them. But of course the United States was not known for follies because uh, of course we were founded as a democratic Republic uh, and there were of course very wealthy people, um, but we just don't have the sorts of landscape gardens, like what I'm describing, like a stowe or a stowerhead. Uh, but then um In 1999, I moved to the Cooperstown area in New York from Boston. And in Cooperstown, I came across Kingfisher Tower. I don't know if you're familiar with that building, Brian, there in Cooperstown.
0: I was not before reading, no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it's on the cover of my book. And when I saw it, you know, it's right on Otsego Lake. It was built by Edward Clark in 1876. Um, And you can't really see it that well from the shore. You really need to get in a boat to get up close to it. Uh, But when I saw it, I thought, what is this little miniature castle doing here on the side of the lake? And I said, that is an honest-to-goodness folly, like you would see in Stowe or Stourhead. And it was completely fascinating to me to find this in Cooperstown. And I wondered, are there other buildings like this? Uh, That's what led me to the book, actually, is wondering are there other follies in america um and what i found was yes there are loads and loads of them they're not all extant uh, and i don't cover all of them in the book i had to be kind of selective in uh, in writing my book but there are l- a lot of follies um and so yeah they're not the most it, most people when they think of follies they think of uh, other things of course some people use in architecture. We'll use the term folly to describe a house that might have been, you know, the the owner overspent, or it's in a weird shape, or something. So that's another way folly is used in architecture. I'm specifically looking though at landscape architecture in my book.
0: And it's funny you mentioned that it's not as, you know, pre- that you many would think it's not present in America, but you found examples. You know, again, in my years of architectural study, I'm very familiar with Philip Johnson and. As familiar as I am, I always mess this up. Bernard Chumi, yes. And so you would in your book you you bring up and you show that they have also kind of done more traditional landscape follies. And again, I was not familiar, and I, I think many others might not be familiar with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bernard Chumi's uh, Parc de la Villette in Paris, uh, which was designed in the 1990s is full of follies. I mean, that's uh, if anyone's been there, um, the whole idea is that he takes kind of the idea of a cube and explodes it and puts it back together. It's deconstructivist. Um, But they are uh, landscape buildings that he calls follies. So he actually uses that term. And that's what, you know, in the conclusion of my book, I look at the period from 1876, which is where most of my book ends. But then in the conclusion, I look at what's happened since then. And I find that in the past 30 to 40 years, there's been a lot of interest in Follies, actually, surprisingly, among contemporary architects and curators looking at architecture. And so I have a few examples, uh, tantalizing examples in the conclusion. Um, and someone like Philip Johnson, you know, at, at, the, at the Glass House, that's a landscape garden. He designs all these little buildings um, in the landscape that act like Follies. So they, they're actually, it's one of those things where follies are kind of everywhere and yet you almost don't see them until it's pointed out to you that they're there. Uh, key example would be the gazebo. You know, um, in 19th century, they didn't call them gazebos, they called them summer houses. Today we say more commonly, uh, we would call them a gazebo, but um, you know, a gazebo is a kind of building that you might not focus on because it's small and it seems insignificant. But what I found in writing this book is that even though these are small and seemingly insignificant buildings, they actually tell us a lot about 19th century culture. So that was what was intriguing is that you could, it's, a, it's almost like follies are a lens, a unique, interesting, different lens uh, through which we can view what's going on in the 19th century.
0: Absolutely. And to kind of piggyback off that, you know, whenever I do speak with authors, there's, there's always a lot of history and a lot of historical figures. I, I have to admit, history has never been my favorite subject. But one thing, just kind of similar point I just made, one, uh, one person that I think everyone's familiar with that kind of comes up with the book a lot, and you talk about a lot of things I, again, I was not familiar with, is uh, Jefferson. Yes. And so, again, we all know, you know, he did his own architecture, et cetera, but there's a lot in here about his role with Follies in America that I don't think many people would be aware of. I was wondering if you could elaborate this very vague question I'm asking.
1: Yes, yeah. Thomas Jefferson is really the key figure in the book. Um, he appears in every chapter, <laughs> um, and that's because he's the one of the first people in the young United States to actually design follies. So, um, at, in in seven around seventeen seventy six, um, he's working on Monticello, his home in Charlottesville. And he starts to design a landscape garden at Monticello. So, of course, the house is very similar to what you would see in England. It's a neoclassical house, but it has this irregular landscape around it. And so so Jefferson designed uh, around 20 uh, landscape buildings for Monticello, but only one of them was ever constructed. So that's why I think most people don't know this story. Um, They're not aware of uh, Jefferson's designs. In 1786, Jefferson went to England with uh, John Adams and the two of them made a tour of English landscape gardens. And when Jefferson came back, he had already started designing follies, but he, he continued. Um, And so that's uh, really something that I found to be really interesting, again, because like you said, most people, if they know Thomas Jefferson, they know him as the third president of the United States. Maybe they know he designed Monticello, but did they know he was a landscape designer? And actually, I started working on this in my first book um, that I mentioned earlier. I have a whole chapter. If you want to learn more, Brian, you you could take a look at um, at that first chapter of my first book, which is about Jefferson's Monticello and the landscape architecture there.
0: Very interesting. And so, you know, talking about historical figure and kind of all this this items that happened in the past, you know, you have an entire chapter dedicated to these follies as ruins now, as most of them seem to be. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about the fact of, the, the, I guess, the the value of these ruins that we have all over.
1: Yeah, so ruins are fascinating because in those aristocratic gardens, sometimes these were estates, you know, in England that had gone back in a family's history centuries. And so if you were lucky enough to be an aristocrat and have a ruined chapel, for instance, from the Middle Ages on your property, you might ask your uh, landscape gardener to frame the view of that ruin so it's not necessarily a purpose-built ruin, but it already exists, and you make it part of your landscape. But for people who didn't have old ruins on their property, they might actually ask an architect to build a ruin, a purpose-built ruin, which is <laughs> kind of weird because, of course, we think of architecture as being stable and uh, not being in, in decay. Um But that was uh, an unusual, again, kind of eccentric thing that people would do in England. Now, when I looked for ruins here, I did not find a lot of purpose-built ruins, Um, but there were some. Um, One of my favorites in the book is uh, a ruin that was uh, also, you might call it a rock work, but it was built in a cemetery in Everett, Massachusetts, known as Woodlawn Cemetery. And I grew up actually near Woodlawn Cemetery. Um, And I used to see this little building, which was from the mid-19th century, but it was still there when I was growing up. And I thought, what is that jumble of rocks in the corner of the cemetery? It was at once a tower that had a spiral staircase and you could climb up to the top uh, and look out um, and have a view. So uh, ruins were interesting because they were very much tied into this, you know, the romantic idea of nostalgia and the idea of walking through a landscaping and coming landscape and coming upon a building that had fallen into decay. and you think about the passage of time and walking through the footsteps of history and that kind of thing. So there weren't that many examples in the United States, but what often happened is if there if there was a ruin, Say, for instance, of Fort Ticonderoga that had dated back uh, to pre- a previous century, a lot of tourists would go to those ruins and it, and experience that kind of nostalgia and reverie um, that you might have in a landscape garden. So I include those types of buildings uh, to look at. Uh, how ruins kind of functioned in 19th century American culture. And so there were quite a few actually examples of that. And I even look at some landscape paintings um, that, uh, that deal with this theme of ruins. So that chapter is more expansive, I guess, in terms of what I'm defining as follies. Um, But it does allow us to understand the few examples of purpose-built follies that I did come across. And so you mentioned,
0: you know, this idea of purposely building a ruin for nostalgia even though it is a brand new structure. And so unless I'm kind of oversimplifying, it seems like of the ruins the the kind of like the lookout stone tower seemed to be the most popular, would, would I be correct in
1: that? Yes, I you know, well Maybe, I guess, is the answer, because I think there were a lot of summer houses, too. And the summer houses were often in the rustic style, which means they were made out of twigs and branches and things that you could find in nature. And a lot of people were building those. For instance, farmers would build summer houses on their property in the winter uh, to keep busy, and it was also a sign of uh, status because you had the free time and the leisure time to actually enjoy such a structure. So, But the problem with those buildings, those rustic summer houses, is that they don't survive um, because of the materials they're made of. They're, they usually only last about 20 years. Um, so the prospect towers that are made of stone uh, do tend to last. And so you will find more extant examples of the towers Um, the towers were very popular in places of, um, of resorts. So places like Niagara Falls, I talk a lot in my chapter on towers about Terrapin Tower, which was on Niagara Falls, um, that no longer exists, but it was one of the most, probably one of the most photographed buildings, I think in New York state (laughs) in the, in the years that it survived, it wasn't even there that long, but it was very popular, um, for tourists to go there was right on the edge of the falls and it was in the shape of a lighthouse um, which is strange because you would not be navigating the river at that point. (laughs) You go over the falls, but um, it was very, very popular. Uh, And so what it allowed people to do was to get that elevated gaze, you know, to go up high and enjoy the view and have some feeling of mastery over the landscape. Um, So there were a lot of uh, towers built and, you know, There could be a part two to this book. I'm not planning to write one right now, but there are loads and loads of, especially these towers in the post 1876 period, well into the 20th century, uh, people are building towers and I keep coming across more and more examples in part because I start talking about follies and people say, what about this one? And what about that one? And oftentimes they're after the period that I wrote about in this book. Um, But there are an awful lot of those towers. And because they're made of long lasting materials, they do still exist today. That's
0: an interesting point. And so, That actually is an unintentional segue. Often when wrapping these interviews up, I do ask, you know, what's in the future? What other projects have you been on since the book's been completed? You may have just kind of hinted at a little bit, but I want to ask you anyways.
1: Yeah, actually, I I do not have a plan to write part two, but um, it's always a possibility. Uh, Right now, I have a book contract... Uh, To go back to my roots in literature, actually, I am editing a new annotated edition of a long forgotten Gothic novel called Monaldi, which was written by the American artist Washington Alston. So he was a Grand Manor history painter in the early 19th century, and he painted a lot of scenes from Gothic novels. He loved them just the way I did when I was reading them in college, especially Anne Radcliffe. And so he painted a lot of scenes. And I have a chapter in my first book about Alston. And um, the publisher of my first book was the University of Wales Press, and they have a Gothic literary studies series. And they also have a new series called Gothic Originals, where they're republishing these old, long-forgotten Gothic novels Um, in new editions. And so I heard about this and I thought, well, that would be perfect for Washington Alston's story, Monaldi. Um, He was really well known as an artist, but he also wrote this uh, gothic novel. So that's my immediate next project. But I have another long-term project that might interest your listeners because of the architecture connection and so the tentative title is the afterlife of american victorian architecture in the early 20th century so this project was inspired by the painting american gothic by grant wood which i'm sure you know Um, Uh, most of us i'm
0: sure do yep
1: yes that regionalist painting of the, the the man and the woman in front of a carpenter gothic house and that was painted in 1930 in iowa and when I was when I first started teaching American art classes, I came across a series of photographs by Walker Evans from around the same period. So Walker Evans, the, the famous photographer, um, was going around around 1930, 31 and taking photographs of buildings in New England and New York that were historic um, and vernacular. Uh, So one of the buildings he took a picture of was a gatehouse in Poughkeepsie. And I saw that photograph and it's a it's very similar to the American Gothic house. You know, it's a, a carpenter Gothic house with steeply pitched gables. And I wondered, how is it possible that Grant Wood in Iowa and Walker Evans in New York are both taking this subject matter of what they called Victorian architecture? So that has led me, uh, kind of like Kingfisher Tower, on this uh, this interesting project where I'm trying to find other examples. And it turns out I have found a lot of other examples of artists like Charles Birchfield, um, and uh, there was an amateur photographer named Natalie Bailey Morris who also did photographs of especially Gothic Revival houses, whether they were villas or uh, you know vernacular cottages. Um, and this was all happening in the, in the early decades of the 20th century. So it's a kind of Victorian revival that happens alongside the more well-known colonial revival. So I'm kind of curious about that. So that's my, my long-term project. Very
0: interesting. Perhaps we can uh, talk again in the future then someday.
1: I hope so. That would be great.
0: And with much less technical issues that our audience would not be aware of. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today
1: yes thank you so much i appreciate it
0: and for everyone listening you know as always we've just barely scratched the surface i would recommend picking up a copy and the book is follies in america a history of garden and park architecture to everyone listening thank you and have a great day